If I asked you if it was really possible for anyone to tell you who you are, you'd probably laugh, maybe even scoff, and say, hell no, because only you can decide who you are, right? Well, yes, I agree with you. And that's not quite the whole story. Other people, in fact, all of us, tell each other who we are all the time. And accepting or rejecting what they tell us isn't as simple or straightforward as we like to believe. You're listening to We're All All Right, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity and about our world today, despite what we see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. Who are you? Who are you really? These questions are almost always on my mind because as a coach, these questions form the basis of my work with clients. And as a coach and as a leader, these are questions that I'm committed to exploring for myself first so that I can guide clients on that expedition. Are the roles that we play who we really are? Is it our work? Coach, teacher, surgeon, artist, haberdasher. What about our relationships? Are they who we are? Are we wife, son, or daughter, parent, best friend? Is that who we are? As you know, in this season, I'm exploring identity. And today, I'm thinking about the complexity of identity. Yes, we choose who we are. And we choose how much any particular role defines us. And yet, we can't disregard, dismiss, or discount other people's perceptions of us. Because they, too, make us who we are. I remember interviewing for a job. I think it was an administrative assistant job at a financial services firm after leaving teaching for the first time. As I've mentioned before in this podcast, I was a teacher in public schools in a former life. Anyway, I distinctly remember this interviewer, a woman who was my age or younger, and I was young in my early 20s, mid-20s maybe. She thought it was cute that I had been a teacher. She may not have used that word exactly, but while looking at my resume and asking about my previous work experience, she said something like, aw, that's sweet, in reference to my teaching experience. I got the distinct impression, which proved to be fairly accurate when I later received word that I wasn't a fit for the job, I I got the impression that she perceived me as soft and nice too nice, really, and therefore not qualified for the hustle and grind of the financial services industry. This was kind of a theme in my 20s and early 30s. I went through a lot of jobs and went down a lot of career paths, looking, searching for the one that really fit how I saw myself, which was something I couldn't exactly describe in words. It was more of an inner knowing about my purpose and my potential. I'm sure you're familiar with this. And when I didn't find it, the perfect job that perfectly fit who I really am, 
I would settle for what was available and adequate and work that I could do, that I was capable of doing, even if it was nowhere near my soul's calling. Because of course, I needed to work, I needed to live to support myself. So I spent a good decade or so feeling disappointed and hurt. Disappointed in the job market, disappointed in myself for not being able to find something that lit me up, and hurt by other people's perceptions of who I was. People like interviewers who saw me as too nice or unambitious and not a fit for corporate culture. And people like friends or family who saw me as maybe non-committal, a little wishy-washy, or the worst, not quite living up to my own potential. Because none of those perceptions matched how I thought of myself. I wasn't unambitious or non-committal. I was just unambitious and non-committal about this particular job and this one and that one too. And yeah, probably the next one I'll look for because none of these are who I really am. Well, you can kind of see the problem. I was asking people to see me in ways that didn't match how I saw myself. I was asking interviewers to see me as a great candidate for a job that I myself knew was not me. I didn't see myself as the financial services type at all, yet it hurt me that the interviewer also didn't see me that way. And I was asking, though perhaps not so directly, people who knew me to see me as committed and actualized, when the truth was, I hadn't found my thing to commit to yet. It's funny how our minds work, isn't it? These little traps that we create for ourselves. In truth, they're protection mechanisms, but at the time, they feel like torture chambers. Anyway, it wasn't until I found coaching, and even more specifically, the kind of coaching I do now, that what I chose as my vocation truly matched my own self-perception. That vision I had for myself that I couldn't quite articulate years ago. Yet, as soon as I found it, the challenge of defying or dodging or, as is sometimes the case, changing other people's perceptions has never gone away. With maturity and experience, of course, my feelings about that challenge and therefore the way that I respond to it have changed dramatically. Yet the challenge remains, and in fact, it always will, not just for me, but for all of us. See, the coaching industry has developed a bad reputation for being full of scammers, unscrupulous, and totally unqualified people. One of the biggest issues is that coaching is a largely unregulated industry, and we all know what happens when the parents go out of town and leave the teenagers home alone. Now, of course, I don't see myself that way. I'm in this coaching game because it truly is my soul's calling, the most liberating way for me to not just fulfill my purpose, but be my purpose. And besides, I'm absolutely phenomenal at it. <laughs> Not so humble brag. But see, that's how you know you found your thing, when you can recognize just how good you really are at it. That's also how other people know you're the real deal. Anyway, 
While I'm solid in my perception of myself as an honest, genuine, and highly qualified coach, I'm also aware that the perception is out there of coaches being swindlers. And because we humans as a collective and our perceptions always influence one another, most people who are looking for coaching have some degree of skepticism about it. And by extension, some degree of skepticism about me when we first meet. This is hardly a problem for me. In fact, talking through skepticism is kind of fun. And besides, as I've said before, I don't take it personally anymore. But we're talking about coaching here. There are other circumstances and other professions in which a difference in perception about how you see yourself versus how you are seen by others can mean everything, livelihood, or even life itself. And that is where I'm taking us today. Hey friend, really quickly and while we're on the subject of coaching, one of my missions with the work that I do, and in particular with my program, The Mentor's Mastermind, is to help other coaches, trainers, and consultants become truly exceptional at what they do so that they can claim for themselves just how phenomenal they really are. Because what I know is that when that happens, when that becomes the state of the coaching industry, there is no limit to the level and caliber of clients we can serve and the impact we can all create together. If this sounds like something you want to be part of, I'd love for you to get in touch. Head on over to phyllis.wilson.pw and click on Work with Phyllis for more details. It goes without saying that the internet has fundamentally changed how we live our lives. In fact, it's changed virtually everything. It goes without saying, but <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. In this episode's five-minute history, I want to look at identity, or more specifically, perceptions of each other's identities through the lens of the internet. So, way, way, way before the internet, I'm talking hundreds of years ago, our options for who we could be as individuals were extremely limited, essentially because our perceptions of self and other were largely, if not entirely, defined by our stations in life, which meant our family background, the work we did, or both. That idea is still with us today, for sure. Yet, as our options expanded for how and where we could live our lives due to industrialization, technological innovation, and of course, policy and lawmaking that extended rights to previously marginalized populations, as our options expanded, so did our perceptions of ourselves and who we could possibly be, and therefore, our perception of others. Yet still, before the advent of the internet, and even up until more recently with Web 2.0, otherwise known as social media, side note, it's funny how we forget that the internet existed without social media, isn't it? That the internet isn't, in fact, social media. Anyway, up until then, so we're talking about as little as 20 years ago, our roles 
that is, our jobs and our relationships, largely determined how we perceived ourselves and each other. And our options, though steadily growing in number, were still relatively limited simply by virtue of the fact that we weren't aware that there were more options. The internet and social media specifically changed all that. Suddenly, it does sort of seem sudden in retrospect, suddenly we had an explosion of possibilities of who we could be, because now we were aware of just how many options there were for how to live life. But that massive expansion of our worldviews, of our worlds, didn't mean we had more control over our own narratives. That is, the ways that we think and we talk about and express who we are and how we want to be perceived. In fact, I would say that since the internet came to be, we have less control over those things, largely because it's nearly impossible to have a distinct private and public identity. It's also nearly impossible to escape, erase, or even blur one's past. Everything lives forever in the ever-present now of the internet. Now, of course, people have changed or attempted to change their identities with varying degrees of success forever, and had various reasons for doing so, some good, some nefarious, some neutral. But think about it. The very idea of reinventing oneself has sort of disappeared. I think there's something a little sad about that. And wow, now I'm thinking about all the double lives that must have been led (laughs) pre-internet. Anyway, so to recap, the internet vastly expanded our options for how we perceive and identify ourselves while clearly making it more difficult for us to escape or to dodge or to change other people's perceptions of who we are. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Well, here's another wrinkle that either explains that paradox or makes it even more paradoxical, or (laughs) maybe both. Somehow, as we saw and experienced through the magic of social media, all of the many, many infinite perspectives and identities we could adopt for ourselves, the leeway that we gave others for playing with all those possibilities and choosing who they wanted to be and how they wanted to be seen was narrowed significantly. We, and when I say we, I mean as a collective, not we as in you or I individually, We began making decisions about who people are in milliseconds based on bits of information we could glean from what we could see online. And those decisions became chapter and verse for how we perceive them forever in the ever-present now of the internet. So that five-minute history was the theory, the philosophical underpinning of what we're really talking about. In my mind, you were nodding your head as I was talking through all of that. Now, in this week's thought experiment, I want to take us into some of the practical implications of having and holding differing, even opposing, perceptions of who we really are. 
So maybe a little less experimental this week. Perhaps I should call it think piece for today. Sure, that has a nice ring to it. So I was talking earlier about my own experience managing and shifting other people's perceptions about me as a coach based on their experiences and what they've heard about coaching. The truth is, the ability to do that, to directly influence other people's perceptions of me and my work, that's a privilege. I have a lot of choice and control over what I do, the actions I take, how I communicate about myself and my work, because I'm my own boss. I work independently from any larger system that might dictate how I do those things. Not everyone has that same level of choice and control over their own narratives, nor the ability to communicate with or even directly access the people whose opinions and perspectives about them really matter. Certainly not if we're talking about masses of people, thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions. Take, for example, female founders of startups in Silicon Valley since the Theranos scandal, or scam, or scamdal. Scamdal should be a word. Ever since Elizabeth Holmes was outed as a fraud, women are having a terrible time securing financing for their startups. A harder time than ever before, and it's never been easy for women in that boys' club. By the way, if you're not familiar with the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, it really is an incredible story, so I recommend it. Check out the podcast called The Dropout. I'll give you a link in the show notes. There's also a series on Hulu that I found really, really good. It's also called The Dropout. It's based on the podcast. And I know Hulu is only available in the U.S., but usually their original series make it to networks around the world eventually, so be on the lookout if that's you. And aside from other female founders, what about the workers at Theranos or at other scam companies? an MLM or a pyramid scheme like LuLaRoe, for example. I'm sure they battle the perception that they must have been naive or stupid or even liars or sociopaths themselves. That affects their job prospects, which also means their livelihood and even their ability to form new relationships. All because of an idea that for many reasons, including and perhaps even mostly, because we've trained ourselves to make quick decisions about people based on very limited information and to stick by those decisions long after the headlines fade. And that brings me to Monica Lewinsky, who could very well be the poster child for this very episode of this podcast. I'm not sure if Monica's name is as seared into cultural consciousness globally as it is here in the U.S., so I'll briefly remind you that she was the 22-year-old White House intern with whom President Bill Clinton had an affair in the late 90s. Monica Lewinsky's identity was decided for her in that time when the internet was very new, pre-social media. And let's just say that she was not well thought of. <clears throat> Massive understatement. And the speed at which information was disseminated about her and about these events had everything to do with the perception that was formed of her. Monica has since 
used social media to become an activist for a safer and kinder online environment, which couldn't be more perfect as far as I'm concerned. She's also incredibly smart and incredibly funny and not at all what I perceived her to be all those years ago. Meanwhile, she is who she's always been. And yes, indeed, I very much got caught up in the jokes and the objectification of Monica Lewinsky back in the day. Now I look at her and I think we could be friends. I'm going to link to her TED Talk from 2015 in the show notes. It's fantastic and well worth a second viewing if you've seen it before. I'll also recommend watching the series about her and the events of the late 90s and how it all unfolded. It's one of the American crime story anthology series, and it's called Impeachment. Monica was actually one of the producers of the show, and I thought it was excellent. Highly recommend it if you can find it and stream it. And finally, I'm going to end this thought experiment slash think piece with the police. Not the band, I mean the quote-unquote serve-and-protect kind. Police in this country are often in the position of making extremely quick decisions about other people's character and acting on those decisions just as quickly. And I think we all know how that turns out, all too often and all too horrifically and tragically. On the flip side, And to be very, very clear here, I am not excusing terrible behavior or even saying that as a whole, their reputation isn't deserved. However, there are, I'm 100% sure, genuine, caring individuals who choose the vocation of law enforcement. I'm also 100% sure that those individuals, if given the opportunity, could do great work for people and their communities. And yet, with the increasingly common perception of police as racist, corrupt, power-mad a-holes, do those officers actually have a shot at doing good? Perception, as they say, is everything. In my 20s and 30s, one of the biggest challenges with navigating my own self-perception and the potentially differing or opposing perceptions of others was that I assumed people would have perceptions of me and make assumptions of me that were inaccurate or false. And when I say assumed, I mean that was my default state of being, my posture toward other people and new situations. That's something that I've consciously unlearned over the last 10 plus years. It became a practice of mine, and truth be told, it's still a practice to consciously drop the assumptions and the defenses I used to put up so that I could be open to hearing and witnessing how other people are showing up and who they're choosing to be without judgment or with as little judgment or prejudice as possible. So that's the first part of my invitation for the week, to start to notice the circumstances and people with whom you tend to make assumptions about who they are, how they think, and how they're going to behave. Notice when you're bracing yourself 
and see if softening a bit. And by the way, I know this can be really hard with certain people. That's why I call it a practice. See if softening a bit doesn't yield some unexpected results, like the other person not being exactly who you thought they would be. That, as I said, is the first part of the invitation. And that's because while it's helpful, and I would argue necessary if we're going to take this any further and create real change, it's also insufficient. That's because it only works on a one-to-one or a one-to-few basis. In other words, it's extraordinarily difficult to let down your guard and dismiss your assumptions when we're talking about a huge group of people or an institution that's organized around a particular idea or set of principles, especially ones you don't agree with. This also doesn't work in urgent situations when we need to trust that the other person is who they claim to be or that they should be given their supposed expertise or their position of authority. So yes, it starts with the perspective of openness because without that, there's no motivation or reason to try to change anything because we assume that, well, that's the way it is or that's the way they are. But this can't be the end of it. You can start to see that the change actually has to happen beyond the one-on-one, human-to-human. It needs to happen at the level of those institutions or organizations or fields or industries so that we can start to trust when it really counts that yes, this person or these people are clear and honest about their intentions and we can make decisions about how we're going to respond to them accordingly. To me, that looks like significantly more rigorous vetting in hiring, contractual, or admission processes. For example, shouldn't police who are carrying deadly weapons be among the most emotionally intelligent people in the world? Well, before we talk about better training, shouldn't we be looking at who these people are when they apply for this kind of work and why they're really choosing it? Frankly, same with coaches and coaching. As I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest issues with the industry and why so many terrible coaches continue to practice is the lack of oversight and accountability. These are things that we can start to demand via our systems of government and at the grassroots level and even the local businesses and organizations in our communities. We can also, when it's not an urgent situation, start asking more questions of the experts and authority figures we interact with or look to hire. My point is this, and it's always this, We have infinitely more power than we tend to think that we do. It starts with an open heart. Yes, but it's where we go and who we are from there that really matters. You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.pw. And hey, I've got something new for you. 
to get each episode in your inbox weekly, plus additional commentary and resources from me, head on over to my website, phyllis.wilson.pw, and enter your email address to subscribe to my brand spanking new newsletter. If you're on Instagram, you can find me at All Right Podcast. That's a great place to share your thoughts and questions about each episode. And finally, if you haven't already done so, don't forget to hit follow in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode of We're All All Right. <laughs>